We're beginning. Now we're beginning. Good evening. That's the first part. It's good to be with you again tonight. This week, we are continuing in our series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. And if you if you haven't been with us, here's a quick recap um, if you've been gone. So in week one of the series, week three, in week one of the series, we looked at the big idea of this letter, and we said that that big idea is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's Galatians in a nutshell. Paul, to kind of set the context, Paul has caught wind of this recent wave of adult circumcision, of all things, um, in the Galatian church. And he's instructing the Christians there at that church to knock all of this off, to stop with the adult circumcision, because he says that they're living in fear of men. That's their thing, that they're living in fear of men, that they've allowed the insults and the judgments of other people, of Jewish Christians in particular, to intimidate them into a behavior that is unnecessary and quite literally a behavior that is only about outward appearances. So Paul reminds them that no one can take away the miracles of forgiveness and salvation and hope and inclusion that have already been freely given to them. He says Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than the pagan or the Hellenistic lives that they had before. And he's better than the pharisaical and legalistic life that they're chasing. So that was week one. In week two, we looked at this, I used an annoying term, but if you know me, you know I use these kinds of phrases all the time. But the phrase that I used last week was the synchronicity of the gospel. Week two is about the synchronicity of the gospel. And the big idea there was, again, oriented around trying to reassure the Galatians that the gospel of Jesus that he says is better is that it's also enough. Paul tells them that this whole thing, this whole thing that he's taught them, that they've been following, has always been about the intimacy of the Jesus story and this personal gift of the Holy Spirit to any and all people who believe. He reminds the Galatians that he himself, that Paul, didn't receive the gospel from the church at Jerusalem. And in fact, he didn't even talk to the church at Jerusalem about the gospel for 14 years after he'd been around talking about it with other people. And yet the miracle of this message is that after this 14 years has passed, when he does finally talk with Peter and James and these other leaders, people who had personally known Jesus, so people who should be experts in the good news, when he finally tells them what he's been talking about for 14 years, this amazing thing happens, and that is that what he's saying and what they've been saying all line up. That they're the same. Paul's gospel is synonymous with the Jerusalem church's gospel, and therefore the gospel the Galatians had heard from him can be trusted to be the gospel. So we talked last week about what hope this idea, the synchronicity can bring even to us as one church among many churches here in our own community. If we're faithful to this story, and if this story about Jesus really is true, then we are going to be led back to one another. And if you can remain curious and sincere in your own faith journey, wherever that is and wherever it's taking you, your relationship with Jesus will bring you back to a community of faith that is richer because you are participating in it. And so that was week two. And week three, this week, we're going to be looking at is this big question that's facing the Galatian churches as they walk that very road that their relationships with 
the more Jewish churches around them is leading them to walk. And the question that they're wrestling with for this week can be summarized like this. What does it mean to be set apart as God's people? What does it mean to be set apart as God's people? And this isn't, it's going to turn out, this isn't as abstract of a thing to talk about as it sounds like it might be. Have any of you ever suffered in your own lives from imposter syndrome? We use this term all the time, right? Imposter syndrome. We use that term to refer to this feeling of having of, of having a place within a group, right? You were technically a part of it, but you still don't feel like you belong, like you've earned a right to be there. I felt this way for the first time most acutely when I was in graduate school, but after writing a whole paragraph about my experiences in graduate school, I realized it was stupid, and so I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> So instead, I'm going to talk about softball. Softball. This past Monday night, as Claire said, our softball team played its first game of the season, and we lost, which is cool because it means we can only get better, right? We're batting zero right now, so it's only going to improve. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about church softball. I know that there are several of you in this church, in this room right now, who are interested in playing softball with us. Not looking at you, Laura, but maybe. <laughs> But you're afraid to come out and play for the team because you think that you stink at softball. And so you don't want to play. And I can imagine, I can imagine a version of our team where that problem would be a pretty real issue, right? Like a version of our team where we, we keep track of like statistics and we have things like tryouts and all that. But here's the thing, that is not our team. <laughs> we don't care if you're good. We really don't. And the reason, and this is an important, and it's a very theologically dense and serious one, um, the reason is because we need to have enough people to play. <laughs> so, so we need you. So you know what I would trade for your skill any day of the week? I would trade curiosity, and I would trade interest, and I would trade joy for your skill. The softball team is by any definition set apart, right? In that not everybody in our church community is on that team. It is a set apart team. But that sense of separateness isn't about skill. That sense of separateness is about a willingness to play. To draw an analogy then, right, the Galatian Christians are deeply aware that the Jewish people have been set apart as God's people. It's an essential part of the Jewish story. And even more, they're aware that Christians are people who are set apart, even within that world of Judaism. And so they begin to wonder reasonably, what permission do we have to be a part of this other team? But Paul has told them that they can be a part, that they're allowed to be a part, not because of their ethnicity or because of their history. They're allowed to be a part merely because they place their trust in Jesus and Jesus has put them on that team. And all that is well and good, of course, of course. At least it works for a little while. You can see how they would buy into this for a bit. But eventually, Paul leaves. And then after he leaves, at some point after he leaves, Jewish Christians, who we can think of in this analogy as like veterans of this team of God's people, have arrived on the scene to sort of tell the Galatians what's what. And they've been telling them about these like good old team, these good old days, right? When they would have drills and routines and practices and expectations that have always gone along in the past with being on this team and the Galatians have started in on this probably very naively innocently they've started in on this training routine on this path towards being competitive as Christians who have this job to do in the world but Paul's point 
now is that these veterans have forgotten what the team is actually for. It's supposed to be about the love of the game. Being set apart was never supposed to be about being competitive. It was always supposed to be about belonging. So here's what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says this, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because, quote, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, quote, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, quote, cursed is anyone or everyone who's hung on a tree. He, Christ, redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That is a tough passage. It's tricky and it's dense. And one of the reasons that that's a tough and a dense and a tricky passage, passage is because it's an exercise in something that we aren't very familiar with, something called midrash, right, or a traditional Jewish practice of using one scriptural passage to resolve the apparent contradictions in two or more other scriptural passages. So it's something that somebody like Paul, someone who's a Pharisee, is well-skilled in being able to do, and certain of his readers would be well-skilled in being able to read, but we, reading all this 2,000 years later and being generally unfamiliar with Midrash, are mostly just going to feel pretty confused when we read a verse like that. So let's work through it as best we can, right? Okay, first, here's what happens. Paul goes back to the beginning of the very notion of being set apart as God's people, set apart by God. In the Bible, this idea begins actually with Noah, who's spared from the great flood, but it is formalized, as Paul notes here, with Abraham, with God's interactions with this patriarch of the Jewish people, Abraham. He's the great ancestor of them all. And in the Abraham story, Paul reminds us there is this moment when God says he's going to set a people apart for himself so that all the other nations and the peoples of the earth will see in the lives of Abraham and his descendants, this is important, in, the li in their lives, people will see a picture of what it means to be loved and provided for by the one and true God. And then likewise, when they see these people who are living under God's care, who are living this set-apart life, then that is going to, to convict them in some way, shape, or form of their difference from that, and they're going to, to have this opportunity to believe their way into that group. They're going to see this picture of what it means to be loved and provided for. But the gates of the community of God's people are intended to be open. That's kind of a key part of the whole thing. This is why he doesn't just say, I'm going to set you apart for your own benefit. He says, I'm going to set you apart for the benefit of everybody else on earth. All nations would be blessed through you. But the question, of course, isn't that promise. The question is how. How does that happen? How will they come to know God Will they come to know God through God's love as revealed by that open invitation of joining this community by faith? Or are they going to come to know God by God's judgment as revealed by the difference between the holiness of this community that he set apart 
and the depravity of all the communities that aren't set apart. To return to our softball analogy, which is going to prove helpful here, right? Is the team special because anybody can join it, or is the team special because it wins? And the problem of this midrash is that scripture, which Paul is resorting to to try and answer the question, seems to say both things. It says both. Paul quotes the book of Leviticus, the chief book of the law, which says this, keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. Life, then, comes by adherence to the rules of the game. But then Paul also, in the next verse, quotes the tail end of this passage from the book of Habakkuk, which is a verse that's not from a book of the law, but it's from one of the writings of Israel's prophets. And that verse reads in its entirety, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So bolstering the faith side of the argument is that reference to the patriarch Abraham, right? Abraham didn't have the law to follow because the law was communicated later during the time of Moses. And yet Abraham is considered righteous. So that's another point for team faith, right? Righteousness doesn't come by the law, it comes by faith. But then bolstering the law side of the argument is this reference to, De to Deuteronomy, which says that all those who don't obey the law are going to live under a curse. And you can't really live under curse and also be righteous at the same time. So what then are we to do? What is the resolution here? Well, Paul answers that tension in the Midrash by looking specifically, of course, at Jesus. And he writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So, what's our solution? Well, Paul says that both positions are true but only inasmuch as Jesus takes on the curse that comes from people breaking the law. He takes that curse onto himself. And there's this flourish here in Paul's solution when he references this other kind of strange verse from Deuteronomy which says that people who are hung on a tree are under a curse. And the idea here is that Jesus, curiously, doesn't just die, but he dies in this symbolically significant way where he's hung up on a cross, this thing made of wood, which is like a kind of tree. And so there's this weird moment where his death echoes this otherwise pretty strange line from Deuteronomy, which doesn't seem to have a lot to do with anything. So the law then ends up resolved in the Jesus story. Jesus lives perfectly by the law, and then he takes the consequences of not living by the law on himself. So whatever debt people owe, the law ends up being fully paid. So then... With like the, the bracket of the law, you can think of it this way. We have like faith in Abraham, faith in Jesus, and then this like law thing in the middle. And so it's like closed off by Jesus. And so we can return with confidence kind of around the side of that to God's arrangement with Abraham, which is an arrangement where everybody gets to play on the team by faith. And specifically by faith in Jesus, who's the one who resolved the tensions of the law. That was super great, right? You guys loved that. It was really heady. Everybody was like, I love stretching. That's why I came tonight, is I want to like sing some songs and like work through Midrash. Okay. Okay. It's heady stuff, 
And it's also a kind of resolution which brings more questions, right? Chief of which is why would you do all of that? Why is the law necessary in the first place? And so it's notable that Paul asks exactly that question in the very next verses. He says, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. And this is so curious. He says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now, this is not that much easier of a passage than what we just did. So I kind of teased you for a second with like a joke so that you would forget that we did like dense stuff, but we have more dense stuff to do. But here's the thing. It's complicated, but I think it largely hinges on how we understand that word guard. Paul says that the purpose of the law is to lock up everything under the control of sin, to lock up everything under the control of sin. So we're going to run with that metaphor here for a second. What is the goal of a jail? This feels like a thing where you'd say, like, wrong answers only. Like, I saw, like, several people's faces go, like, I don't want to answer that question. I don't know. Okay, fair. Totally fair. Let's work hypothetically. Why do we have them? Why do we have jails? This past week, on this note, I was talking to my daughter, Evangeline, about the weirdness of laws surrounding marijuana these days. I want to be clear, this didn't come up for any specific reason in my conversation with my 13-year-old. It just, it just came up in conversation. As you all know, like my family, we're national parks people. We love to go to national parks and all that stuff. And one of the funny things about national parks, if you ever go, and if you're looking to use recreational marijuana, you should know this, it's very important, is that you can't do it there. You can't do it in a national park. Because technically speaking, the national park's not a state-owned property. It's a federally-owned property, which means that they, parks, and the rangers who work for those parks must adhere primarily to federal law over and above state laws. So although many states in the United States have decriminalized marijuana for their own jurisdictions, the federal government has not done so. And so even though Colorado is famously like the place to go, if you are in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, don't do this. Don't do it because you're going to get a fine. You're going to get a fine because the federal law takes precedence over the state law in that place. So this conversation about the weirdness of drug laws then led us into a conversation about the war on drugs. This is going somewhere. I promise this is going somewhere. The war on drugs in the 1980s and the 1990s and how the war on drugs has led not to its intended effect. We're going to be generous here. Not to its intended effect, which was theoretically curbing drug use, but it has led hypothetically to this unintended effect, which is locking up huge numbers of people at this unfathomable human cost. And I bring this subject up, not to court controversy, but to try and make sense, if I can, of what Paul is saying. So to draw this analogy, the law of Israel might have seemed like its purpose 
was to define what sets Israel apart as righteous and holy and different from their neighbors. Israel, in this metaphor, is drug-free. But what actually happened was that in the light of the law, no one can be seen as righteous. As the book of Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that we have sinned because we have the law standing watch over us, guarding us, and making it clear both what a holy life is supposed to look like and how our lives are different than that life. But the problem in Jewish society in the first century is that the law has been so intellectualized by the priests that what was intended to be descriptive of God's unique holiness, something that was intended to be descriptive of God's difference, has been turned into hundreds of little steps that can allow people to think that they can get to there. The law was transformed from sweeping and holistic statements like, thou shalt have no other gods before me, which is something that everybody fails to do in some way, shape, or form, into smaller, specific laws, which can then be meticulously observed. And the result is a confusion about which side of the jail religious people are supposed to be in or stand on. Instead, of religious people being people who are confronted with our sin as fellow prisoners under the guardship of the law, religious people worked the system to where we become the guards. We become the people who are righteous. And this shoe, I think, for all of the weirdness of working through Midrash on a Saturday night, this shoe, I think, still fits for a lot of Christians. Do we see God's law as something that keeps us humble? Or do we see God's law as something that puffs us up? Like that verse from Habakkuk says. And according to Paul, this is exactly the dilemma that Jesus came to solve. Because by being actually, truly, profoundly faithful to the law, Jesus sets an example that cannot help but humble us as we fail to be that. <laughs> we can convince ourselves that we can follow the 600 plus rules of the law itself, but when you see Jesus, it's hard to say, I could, if I try hard enough, be like that guy, because you can't. Paul, who is himself a law-abiding, law-keeping, law-preaching Pharisee, once upon a time makes exactly that point, doesn't he? in his own testimony. Despite all of his righteousness, all of his adherence to the law, in the moment when Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, he sees that all of his efforts, as he's going to say in other letters, are like filthy rags compared to the actual vision of who Jesus is. And in fact, his judgmentalism took him further from Jesus' example, is what he begins to realize. true of me too, right? My judgmentalism tends to take me further from the example Jesus sets instead of bringing me closer to him. In the light of Jesus's warmth, grace, humility, generosity, self-sacrificing love, who can possibly see themselves as outside the prison of the law any longer? In the light of who he is, like 
you're in. You're locked up. We're all locked up. So what then, right? Is the point then that nobody except Jesus gets to be set apart? Is the point then that God has no people to bear witness to who he is in the world? Is the point that God is on some kind of strange millennia-spanning kick to like punish his own creation by holding them to an impossible standard? I think like apart from Christ, it can seem like all of that. But the story, of course, isn't finished. Paul writes in those next verses in Galatians 3, 26 through 4, 7, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither prisoner nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a prisoner, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in prison under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a prisoner, but God's child. And since you were his child, God has made you also an heir. So the big story that God has been telling remains the same. He wants to be known in the world. He wants to be known in the world. He wants to set a people apart for himself for that very purpose of being known in the world. But what makes those people set apart, what makes them an example of who he is, is not their purity. What makes them an example is his generosity. He sets prisoners free. That's what God's love looks like. That's what his love does. And we embody that message when we live in freedom. But Kenny, what about holiness, right? Are we not meant to be good? Well, yeah. But this is why the Holy Spirit is also part of the whole story that God's telling, right? Along with God the Father, along with God the Son. Because we believe in our faith that God's Holy Spirit lives in us once we walk out of those open prison doors of our sin. And that Holy Spirit that comes to live in us promises to do the very work of bringing hope and life and kindness into our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As we listen to that spirit that indwells us, as we trust in the God who sets us free for freedom, another amazing synchronicity is going to happen. And that is that not just our behaviors, but our hearts are going to start to look, well, they're going to start to look a lot like the law. What once revealed our brokenness will begin to reveal God's holiness and his goodness 
and his generosity to us. And this doesn't happen by effort. It happens through humility and trust. Not by effort, but by humility and trust. The application section of the sermon then is extremely short. Here it is. Hear that God loves you and desires your freedom. Believe that this is possible, that the real Jesus has even already done this work, has opened the door of the cell that you are in. Walk through that door and then keep walking by staying open to the voice and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I say this like the application out of, that's the application of all sermons. That's the whole story. No matter where you are in your faith journey, whether it's in a process of reconstruction or a process of deconstruction, I think the work you can actually do is you can make silent spaces in your life where God can show you how he really feels about you. That's a discipline that you can do. You can make those silent spaces where God can show you how he feels about you. And then the Holy Spirit in those spaces can begin to shape you or to continue to shape you. So it really is just those four things here. Believe, walk, keep walking. I don't say this often at the end of sermons here at Revolution for a whole bunch of reasons but tonight I think it's appropriate. So I wanna say this, if you want to talk about this freedom, and if you want to talk about what it means to accept that freedom and to live into that freedom, I'm here and you can talk to me about that. That conversation with me is the first step. And if you want that, a further step, if you want a further step, that step is baptism. Baptism, as we talk about it here at Revolution, is this initiation into this journey, into that walking, it's accepting that the door has been opened and that you're free and it's beginning to walk into that freedom. We don't teach at Revolution that baptism is a proof of anything. It's not for people who already have all the answers. It's for people who have just the opposite of the answers, honestly. And it's open to you. It's open to all of you if you ever want it. It's a weird sermon, I know. Heady, dense, ended with me talking about baptism, a weird thing for me sometimes. But I got to say, it's a privilege to be your pastor. It really is. I don't say that enough at this church, but I mean it. It's a privilege. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue in worship tonight. God, thank you for who you are. And thank you for who you've made us to be, who you've invited us to be, for for being a God who loves us enough to make a way for us. God, I pray that we will be open. We'll be both open to, to recognizing the gifts that you've already freely offered us. We'll be open to accepting them and that God, no matter where we are, no matter what ways we might feel stunted or, or stuck in our faith, God, that, that the step we'll take won't be one of following any law that the step that we'll take will be one of of listening of creating those spaces to listen so you can remind us of who you say we are and what team you've chosen to put us on and the point of that team um, which is which has never been to win under our own power but to reveal your goodness and your generosity and your love we thank you god for that plan 
for loving us. And, and we pray, God, that we'll, we'll be open and we'll follow. In your son's name, amen.